Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you on your beautiful campus and beautiful Iowa weather. I'm sure that this is just typical, right, year-round, just like Michigan, and January would be about like this, too. Um, but it's a privilege to be with you. And I'm eager to explore with you more about the Spirit's work and to participate in this series. As I was thinking about our passage that I'll read from Romans 8, this great chapter that John Calvin actually thought was in some ways the center of Holy Scripture, <laughs> um, giving us lens through which to view the rest of Scripture. I thought about the question, how do we recognize the Holy Spirit, and what are some signs of the Spirit? There's a number of ways we could answer that, which are theologically correct answers and biblically correct answers. The Spirit enables us to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The Spirit unites us to fellowship with the Father, into fellowship with God and with one another. But the passage today from Romans 8, 22 to 27, gives a sign of the Spirit that is pretty surprising for our context and for, I think, American Christianity today. Within the great drama of what the Apostle Paul is describing, he says that the sign of the Spirit is a groaning, an aching, a sighing that is too deep for words. Let's come together in prayer as we hear from God's word. In you, O Lord, we find life and light, strength in our weakness, hope for the creation and for our lives. Speak to us, Lord, through your spirit that we may grow up into maturity in Christ. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Romans 8, starting with verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, inwardly, as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray for what we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes through us 
with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We give thanks to the Lord for his life-giving word. There are two wondrous and puzzling realities that frame the groans of creation and the spirit in this passage. The first is that we find ourselves caught up in a drama that is pretty different from the drama that our cell phones and social media and much in our culture indicates is the true drama. It's very easy to live, for me to live, as if we're the star in our own movie. And we come to God, and even when it comes to faith, we try to be a good Christian, and we fulfill our part and expect for God to fill his part. And it's easy to assume that, yeah, we're pretty good people, we're pretty good Christians, and if I pray and have acts of service, then God will fulfill his side of the bargain, too. But Paul says that we don't even know how to pray. In fact, Paul says it's impossible for us to pray, in a certain sense, apart from the Holy Spirit. When we come together and sing and gather and pray together, it's not about us down here sending messages to God up here, but that the Spirit is praying in us and through us. The Spirit does this in a particular way as ones who are united to Jesus Christ, the Son. And so, as Paul said, um, we are eagerly awaiting our full adoption into sonship and being sons and daughters of the Lord. And yet we experience that some now. In this passage, the hope of the Spirit's work, which we have right now as a, in a down payment, is one to make us long and ache for the fullness of the cre new creation, the redemption of our bodies, he says, that is to come. So I think that's one reason why he says not just we are adopted children of God, but we await and ache for our adoption. I'm an adoptive parent myself, and our oldest is adopted from Ethiopia. And one thing that I learned in that process that is actually similar to adoption in the ancient world as well is that adoption is first and foremost a legal process. I can't just go up to 
a child, even a child who doesn't have parents, and just say, hey, let's start acting like I'm your dad, and let's just make this work. You know, let's, let's just have warm feelings of affection toward one another, or let's just, you know, start, um, just move into our house, and um, we're just going to start acting like this. In the ancient world, it was the case as well. It's not just about how you feel <laughs> at a certain moment. It's actually a legal action. Paul goes into this in other parts of um, the book of Romans when he speaks about justification. We are declared those who belong to Jesus Christ. We are declared to be sons and daughters of God, able to be part of this um, fellowship with the Father. And yet, although about a third of the time Paul will talk about this adoption as something that's already taken place, most of the time he speaks of it like he does here, that we're aching, eager for this adoption. It hasn't come fully yet. We taste some of this new identity, but it hasn't come fully yet. And so we find ourselves in a context and an identity where we're not really in charge. It's not our lives as the central storyline, and then we bring in God when it's either helpful or, you know, God fulfills his side of the bargain. The whole storyline is God's. Our life is in Jesus Christ, being united to him by the Spirit, and learning little by little how to be daughters and sons. But we not only can't take the set first step, we can't continue this process apart from the Holy Spirit, this groaning of the Spirit. I think the groaning of the Spirit is difficult for us to understand today for a number of reasons. And it, for me, it took some pretty significant loss before I was able to come to a greater understanding of this groaning. It was 10 years ago this month that I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer. And in my late 30s, with my daughter three and my son one at that time, I, when I told the seminary where I teach about it and the congregation where I am at, I started with saying that the most important reality is one is the biblical truth that the Heidelberg Catechism, which I love, testifies to in its first question and answer, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my storyline. That's the big drama into which my story, in its broken parts, and in its parts that 
seem less broken. That's, that's the story in which it fits. But what about the groaning and aching? Because later on in that question and answer, it says, he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Now, admittedly, I don't have that much hair at this point, though I did have more hair 10 years ago. It was, I went into intensive chemo treatment and then within a few months into the hospital for a stem cell transplant where I would lose every bit of my hair as a toxin was put into my body. Is this what God wanted? Is this God's will for my hairs? <laughs> After my wife Rachel and I had had trouble for years having children and then adopted and then um, Rachel gave birth to our son, was this the great plan all along? To take away their dad while they're young? Well, I love Reformed theology, I'm a professor of Reformed theology, and one of the things I love is the reality that Reformed theology proclaims, that God is king. The Lord is enthroned forever, the psalmist says, your name endures to all generations. The Lord is king. But sometimes we can hear this in the wrong way. Sometimes we can hear this in a way that shuts us off to the groanings of creation and the groanings of the Spirit. What's remarkable about Paul's passage here is he not only speaks about this, the groaning of the whole of creation, but he, he indicates that the Spirit actually intensifies our groaning. Christians should be known as the ones who groan even more intensely. That we know that this creation is good, and yet it's not the way things are supposed to be. I remember when a student sent me Psalm 102 and said he was praying this psalm for me, and I could not make it through the psalm with dry eyes. It's a psalm written by someone with a disease that was going to cut them off through their life mid-course. Is this all part of God's perfect plan? I think that as I wrestled with the psalms, I saw how the psalmist had been wrestling with the kingship of God, <laughs> just as the Heidelberg Catechism did as well. And that a true approach, a Christian approach in Christ to the kingship of God is not to say when the couple has a miscarriage, oh, it was ordained by God. 
you lose a sibling in an accident. Oh, it was ordained by God without lament. The psalmists, again and again, use the promises of God to throw back at God as a hinge point. They trust God enough to wrestle precisely because the Lord has promised to shine his face on his covenant people. That is why the psalmist says, Lord, why have you hidden your face from me? Because we all experience and will experience times that it doesn't seem like God's promises are coming true. Now, we could deny the kingship of God and say, hey, maybe it's just out of God's hands. Maybe God couldn't do anything about it. God's grieving with me just as much as I'm grieving. I haven't found that to be either biblical or helpful myself. But the alternative is not just to say, oh, it's ordained by God. Shut down the emotions. It's actually to enter into this aching that Romans 8 speaks about. The aching that, yes, we are adopted daughters and sons of the Lord, but we're not there yet. We belong to Jesus Christ, but he has not yet come back. He has not yet come back to bring the kingdom in fullness. And so, even as you think about your future and what you would like to do and be and draw job that you pursue, it's easy to think in terms of, oh, I want to go um, bring fulfillment in particular ways. And that's natural and good. But remember to listen for the aches. Listen for the aches in your own heart and those in your neighbor. Remember that you're small. We're small, we're beloved, but we're dust. And part of this much larger story. And we're not heroes in the story. We're witnesses like John the Baptist. I recall one time when a friend of mine was a chaplain in a children's hospital and he was counseling a nurse who had become a nurse because she wanted to help those in need. In some sense, she wanted to change the world, make the world a more compassionate place. But she was facing burnout. She said, look, on the floor I am on, all these kids have terminal illnesses. I go in, I change their bandages, I engage and smile, but they just die. This isn't changing the world. I don't think I'm changing anything. And my friend said to her, Keep faithful because your work 
is itself an act of lament and groaning. That we live in this order where a six-year-old dies. And it's an act of witness that this is not the way things are supposed to be. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will come back and make all things new. The Spirit groans. And it groans and aches, the, the Spirit groans and aches looking forward, and looking forward to judgment. Now, another <laughs> sort of scary word for us, but judgment in the sense that the Lord will make things right. Things are not as they ought to be, as they are supposed to be. And so in this groaning and aching, the Spirit again actually picks up on what we see in the Psalms, an aching and anticipation for the Lord to come and show his kingdom, show his kingship. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, Psalm 96 says. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. It is with joy and anticipation and gratitude for the present life that we have that the psalmist says, look forward, ache, hope. For precisely because we belong to Jesus Christ, the one who is the King of Kings, we long and ache with those who are aching now. For his kingdom, he is the true Lord, but his kingdom is not uncontested now. It's, we still live in what Paul says in Ephesians, this dark world, as we await for his kingdom to come, as we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. And that's why the creation itself and in the spirit, we ache and groan until our ascended kingly Lord comes again. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.